did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and this is part two of our little mini-series on women's reproductive health in Mormonism. So if you are just tuning in, you want to go to episode one, I'll link it here. But make sure you hear that one first so you can hear the the context of our conversation. I'm going to lead you into the conversation with uh, scholars Christina Rossetti and Sarah Brains. Sarah Brains is a midwife and... Christina Rossetti is a fellow studying um, Mormonism. She's a Catholic girl studying Mormon, the Mormon faith. And so we're going to be talking part two of women's fertility and Mormon sexuality. So you were walking us into the 1860s. Sarah, is there anything else you want to say on early Mormonism and reproduction before we move on? I just I want to reiterate what that Christina mentioned off of the recording is that women, that midwives were called to this calling. It was a, it was a, a call. They were set apart. Um, their Patty Sessions, she was not only set apart by Joseph Smith to be midwife, but she was also then uh, set apart by Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young in 1847 for the specific job of healing women and for taking care of women and their medical needs. So she received several, several callings and setting aparts and ordinations to care for the women of the church. And that it was a very, uh, it was an honored role in the 1800s. And I have personally felt that there not be that much of an honoring of that legacy today. Just want to put that in there. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree with that. And I think it's it's has roots in we talk about this, but in some ways women had a lot more autonomy than they do now in the church once it's been streamlined and I think we see that in all all aspects of women's spaces, right? Like their spheres, how they interact with one another is now completely different. It's sort of what's the word I want? Correlated. I hate to be cliche, but it is. The way that women interact and visit each other is correlated. The way that we understand and talk about women's issues is correlated. And so it makes sense that some of that autonomy has been lost with um, reproduction too. And I do want to point out that when we're talking about this, we're, talk- we're talking mostly about, you know, white Mormon women. There were black Mormon women and their health care would have been similar. I don't really have information on indigenous strategies for doing this, but I do want to say something about just black women's experiences at the time because we do know something. We do know that African-American women have always fought for dignity and respect when it comes to their bodies, and they would have been dealing with similar issues uh, with reproductive rights. I'm going to link to a blog that talks about these issues, and but there's this really great, great quote that talks about this time period. It says, approximately 20% of the American population was African American before the Civil War. Before the Civil War, black women had to hide their knowledge and con- uh, about contraceptives and abortifacients they had secretly brought from Africa or learned in America because plantation owners punished women who did not breed more slaves. In active resistance, black women employed contraceptive methods and abortion. They even resorted to infanticide to oppose slavery and exert some limited control over their destinies, even though sexual assault and sexual abuse against enslaved women was rampant. This knowledge was spread even after 
even wider after slavery through midwives and secretive literature, although the Comstock Law of 1873 was a federal law that made it a crime to sell or distribute information or materials that could be used for contraception or abortion. For example, in 1894, The Women's Era, an African-American women's journal edited by Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin declared that, quote, not all women are intended for mothers. Some of us have not the temperament for family life, she wrote. And it's in the 20th century that the African-American population was cut in half by having fewer children. Um, But there was also forced breeding of black women that had come to an end due to the agency of black women. So they could no longer breed. And I use that that term deliberately, breed black women. Um, And so women had a little bit more control over their autonomy. However, we do know that throughout the 20th century, there have been active institutional efforts to... Uh, sterilize black women and sterilize women of color and Latina women and Native women. So um, I'm going to link to this if you want to learn more about that. But yeah, when we're talking, we're, we're talking specifically mostly about Mormon women, but this would have applied to black Mormon women too. They were using the same techniques, midwives and things like that. Yeah. Okay, Christina, bring us into the frontier period. The best time. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that's important to note as we talk about abortion and birth control and sexual practices is that the law of chastity was different at this time. Today, in especially in the LDS church, the law of chastity is associated with only having sexual relations with people that you are legally and lawfully, not people person, that you are legally and lawfully wed to, singular, because we do the monogamy thing now. But for most of Mormon history, Uh, The law of chastity was a lot bigger than that. And if you look at fundamentalist pamphlets on the law of chastity, if you look at general teachings on the law of chastity, it was always on on lawful marriages, legal lawful marriages, except for in the case of polygamy, and birth control, the use of birth control and abortion was always lumped into that. And there was always a heavy focus on the first law, the first commandment given to human beings, which was to multiply and replenish the earth. And so central to marriage, central to sexuality was that commandment. And so that's really why we get early ideas of ensuring that people aren't using birth control or having abortions because it goes against the law of chastity. Uh, And so the first quote that I have was from Brigham Young, and it was delivered in Tooele, which I just learned how to say when I moved to Utah. It's not Tooele or Tooele. And it was on August 17th, 1867. And it's kind of a big quote, so bear with me. Quote, Well, on the other hand, to my certain knowledge, many of them encouraged a practice which today exists to an alarming extent and which is openly and shamelessly acknowledged as a necessity of the age. To check the increase of our race has its advocates among the influential and powerful circles of society in our nation and in our nations. The same practice existed 45 years ago, and various devices were used by married persons to prevent the expenses and responsibilities of a family of children, which they must have incurred had they suffered nature's laws to rule preeminent. That which was practiced then in fear and against a reproving conscience is now boldly trumpeted abroad as one of the best means of ameliorating the miseries and sorrows of humanity. Infanticide is very prevalent in our nation. It is a crime that comes within the purview of the law and is therefore not so boldly practiced as is the other equally great crime, which no doubt to a great extent prevents the necessity of infanticide. The unnatural style of living, the extensive use of narcotics, the attempts to destroy and dry up the fountains of life. 
Uh, and so there was a fundamentals pamphlet that was made in 1973 called Fountains of Life, um, called like something about fountains of life. Dang it. I love, uh, I love that Victorian euphemism. Fountains, fountains of, of life. life. Um, it gets its name from the, the pop minister again. There's a fundamentals pamphlet in 1973 that takes its name from this fountains of life metaphor that talks about how birth control is really a destructive force that's going to ruin the morality of um, humanity. It's going to destroy God's creation. It's going to destroy the plan of salvation. And so birth control becomes a central issue in the frontier period of Mormonism. Birth control, I think this idea of controlling families, we see this show up. I mean, I think I can't recall it now, but when I was doing the Word of Wisdom research, I started to see this idea of limiting children mm-hmm. coming in conflict. But yet we have folks like Heber Kimball who go off on this idea of, I, th- I think he was the one that talks about you can only have sex. Sex should only be for procreation, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have that quote? No, but that's not a unique quote. In uh, I'll see if I can find out while we're talking, but... Sarah, why don't you talk to us about, um, are there really any changes in practice from like Kirtland or Nauvoo period to the frontier period? Are there developments? I have a Rastus Snow talking about women who get abortions. Yeah. Is that who you meant? Yeah, give it to us. Oh. Uh, so Erastus Snow in the Assembly Hall of, the Salt Lake, of the Assembly Hall in Salt Lake City, he said, the Latter-day Saints do not imitate the examples of the Eastern cities and the old commonwealths of the Atlantic seaboard in destroying their offspring. They do not patronize the vendor of noxious poisons, destructive medicines to procure abortion, infanticide, child murder, murder, and other wicked devices, whereby to check the multiplication of their species in order to facilitate the gratification of fleshly lust. Wow. The Saints don't do that. No, 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 not, not, not on their watch. Okay, so Sarah, I'm going to ask you that question again. Sarah, do you do you have anything? Did I know that the development of Thomasonian medicine, which is sort of like this natural medicine? I, I'm, I'm thinking it's like Stapley or Petrie that wrote about the development of Thomasonian medicine. So I'll link to that article. But do we really see any changes in the understandings or practices of of reproduction in the frontier period? Um, we do start to see a this cross fertilization between Mormon practice of birth and reproduction with the the wider practices of the non Mormons in the area, especially as the saints were moving from Nauvoo westward. They also started to they adopted these practices naturally as people were converting to Mormonism, and uh, they would take their practices with them these these converts into the Mormon practice. And as they moved westward, they actually started to um, fine tune their practices just because they were getting outsiders with more information and different perspective on health and on reproduction. And so it was helpful. This, this conversion to the church was helping women's reproduction and their birth practices, helping them be safer too. And this just occurred to me, I don't know why I'm stuck on this theme tonight, but can you imagine menstruating on the plains? Like we hear all of these stories of pioneer women, like that just sounds not great. That would be the day I'd be like, can you guys push me in the handcart? Yeah, I I can't think about that. Yeah, it's hard enough when you're camping. I can't imagine when you're camping for months at a time. <laughs> Frankly, Sarah, I'm surprised that our young women's leaders didn't lord that over us as a guilt trip. Like... <laughs> You can't go swimming because you're on your period. Do you know what the pioneers did? 
<laughs> yeah. Definitely. Okay. Sorry. Um. So back to the idea of law of chastity. We do know that adultery was on their minds. It was always on their minds. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we have as early as 1848 where Brigham Young instructs the 70s meeting um, about adultery. Um, they have, this is kind of a gross, uncomfortable thing, but in March of 1848, Benjamin Covey was excommunicated for um, molesting um, two girls that were less than 12 years of age who were his foster daughters. And he was eventually rebaptized and served as the Bishop of the Salt Lake 12th Ward from 1849 to 1856. So this idea of pedophilia, um, which it's clear this guy was a pedophile, was not really fine-tuned. Heber Kimball, <laughs> Heber Kimball, man, he was surprisingly obsessed with adultery, but I think that's because lots of his wives weren't really faithful to I, w- I wouldn't say lots. Several of his wives weren't fi- faithful to him. And um, like we've talked about earlier in the podcast, being a wife of Heber C. Kimball was a rough bag because he was gone all the time. He wasn't very wealthy. And I mean, here's a guy that says sex is only for procreation. So doesn't seem like he was gifted in the art of romance. Yeah, and I think that goes back to, there was a really big concern in the 19th century about bearing children. Because, you know, if you're going, if you're having sex, children can come of it, whether or not it's in a legal lawful marriage or an adulterous relationship. Um, and so heavily connected to this idea was the church's concern for lust and the early idea that children, so that children born out of lustful unions were going to be disabled or they were going to be physically deformed even. Um, and Orson Pratt talks about this very early on in the seer in his article on celestial marriage. And he talks about how love has to be controlled in virtue, how it can't be done in excess. And this continues into a lot of fundamentalist discourse on sexuality who talk about that lust introduces evil into the family life and it can harm the child. Um, And Joseph Musser, my favorite he talks about this in his book of remembrances when he, um, in terms of sexuality, he talks about how uh, the channels for children have to be pure and they cannot be born out of lust. And there were certain fundamentalist leaders in the early 20th century that talked about children born out of lustful unions will not get to enter into the millennium. It was that bad. So adultery was a problem. Because if you're ha- if children are born out of these unions, they're not going to attain exaltation. Well, and I want to throw in one other wrench into this. Um, it's in January, fi- January fifteenth of eighteen fifty one that the first of Brigham Young's five divorces that he would have starts. And so this idea, these men are also grappling with. We don't think about this with plural marriage, but it really ramps up all the issues that you have with normal female and male relationships. But men have to deal with it multiplied, right? So this idea of women having children with a man, having sexual relations with a man, and then divorcing him is something that they are contending with too. So this is how they are starting to understand relationships. And it's not, I would say this is where it differs from other 19th century Americans because the leaders who shape the discourse have very unusual sexual relationships with women. Fair? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. There. Um, okay. So, you know. So, Christina, give us more information about the law of purity. Set that up for us. Tell us what it is. Yeah. So, the law of purity, that term actually doesn't come up 
pretty much anywhere um, outside of fundamentalism and outside of fundamentalism in the 1970s, that's where it kind of really begins. But up until then, it was just called the law of chastity. And Mormon fundamentalists, they maintain early ideas of the law of chastity. So the quote that I mentioned from George Q. Cannon, who talks about how adultery is not permitted, uh, sexual sexual practices, sexuality, sex during gestation and lactation is not permitted, birth control is not permitted, abortion is not permitted. For Mormon fundamentalists, that all falls under the law of chastity. So the law of chastity is much bigger than what LDS people believe. And in the 1970s, that's when this idea of the law of purity comes up. So the law of purity comes up in the 1970s with people reflecting back on the rise of modern Mormon fundamentalism, specifically uh, Lauren C. Woolley. And Lauren C. Woolley had very strict ideas about how sexuality should be practiced. And he looked to George Q. Cannon and Orson Pratt and even Joseph Smith to consider how sexuality should be accomplished, should be done within marriage. And he claims that Broadbent and Joseph Musser received this teaching from him. And Joseph Musser does continue teaching the law of purity, what became the law of purity throughout his whole life. And it was adopted by Rulon Allred and taught in the Apostolic United Brethren up and up to a certain point. Um, but Rulon Allred did end up saying that it was too hard to teach. And a lot of fundamentals have abandoned the practice today, or it's only taught to certain people. And it's particularly taught to people who are going to live plural marriage. So this is a doctrine that's heavily connected to plural marriage. And it's considered the commandment surrounding keeping the principle. So this is still something that's practiced that in certain fundamentalist groups that you're not having sexual relations during gestation or lactation periods. Um, Even in your podcast, you had a guest on that talked about that she was in a group that had the law of purity and she didn't know about it when she joined the group because it is something that isn't talked about um, because it is equated to asking someone about one's sex life and concern about that isn't just a Mormon fundamentalist ideal. I do not go up to random Catholic women in my parish and ask them about their sex life. I'm just not going to do that um, because people don't feel comfortable doing that. And so that's why this doctrine is not talked about until people are going to be getting married a lot of times. And maybe Sarah can answer this, but I do I did have very scant knowledge about sexuality as an LDS youth. I mean, I think the most blatant blunt sex talks I had was when I had one of those what do they call them now? Um where you go to the doctor. Oh, the premarital <laughs> Yes, the premarital exam. So so I had a premarital exam, which I thought every woman had before she got married. I I guess I didn't ever think about what it meant for women who were having sex that weren't married. But the doctor comes and they check your anatomy. And like in my case, they say, well, it's not ready. So you have to use this tool to stretch. And I just thought like I was horrified. A what? (laughs) It's called an expander. An That's expander. <laughs> I mean, this was the kind, and she talked to me about the mechanics of sex. I had been given the book Between Husband and Wife, which I think was pretty forward thinking at the time. But I, I even remember worrying about this idea of having sex during pregnancy. But can we just say like, that's a lot of confidence in a man's body that he is going to somehow do damage to a fetus during sex, like settle down. Settle down, brethren. You're not that powerful. Okay. Uh, any anyone want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, and that's not that's not 
And so I, when I was researching this, um, I, for some reason, was utterly convinced that this was a teaching that existed outside of Mormonism. No. So I, I'm sure there are people. (laughs) (laughs) So in, I couldn't find other religious traditions that have prohibition, specific prohibition. So whether it's a personal choice or not, Absolutely. There are certainly people that think sex during pregnancy is going to harm a fetus. There are certainly people that think that sex during lactation is going to, you know, take nutrients away from the fetus. Um, But whether it's a religious prescription and it's enforced by religious leadership or not, that seems particularly Mormon at this time. Now, there were homeopathic physicians at the time that did condemn this practice. But from the wider medical community, there wasn't a whole lot discussed about this. Interesting. Okay. Um, Sarah, do you have any, like, do you still encounter women that are like the worried about that? Cause I, I mean, I think my stereotype now is that women who use midwives are more in tune with their own bodies. And I think a little bit more educated sometimes than someone who like me just goes in and does whatever the doctor told her to do because he's a doctor and he would know. Yeah. So you would think, and I would like if, everyone was more informed and familiar with their body. But um, I do have to deal with a lot of, I deal with a lot of men who are the partners of these women. And that's where a lot of the questions will come from actually, Uh, you know, of, Oh, like when, when she's in her seventh or eighth month of pregnancy, Oh, can, can we still have sex? Will I hurt the baby? I have received that question a handful of times and I, and I want, you know, that's a valid concern, I guess. And I want to honor their question. I will answer and explain all the different barriers and what the cervix does. And there's a mucus plug and all of those things. I'll go through all of that, that there are so many layers between their penis and the baby. But, and I think that just tells us that we don't talk about sex beyond, you know, the act of, of in Mormonism, especially the act of like waiting to have sex, like waiting for marriage to have sex. And then we don't talk about it after that. We have this buildup. Yes. And then we don't discuss anything more than that. I do have a book that I give, I have probably given about 20 copies of this away to my friends. It's a great book and it's called I Heart Female Orgasm. And it has a brief anatomy lesson and it is written more so for the partner and it's to teach them about the body of this woman they are marrying in my Mormon context. They were all for their bridal showers. Um, but it's still, we don't, we don't talk about the mechanics of sex and, and a lot of women, you were discussing your premarital exam. I, so I grew up in San Francisco and in San Francisco, we, I mean, you, people started to go, my friends are going to the gynecologist when they were sexually active, you know, when they were, either if that was 14 or 16 or 18. And I started going to the gynecologist when I was 16 because I I had a friend who had a scare with cervical cancer. So I just started going because yes, I was not sexually active, but my cervix was still a part of my body that was being used. Blood was still passing through my cervix. And so when I came to Utah and I had I had friends and 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 college roommates that were not going to the gynecologist before they got married, I was shocked and I was asking them about their body and they didn't know certain things about their body. And they also thought, Oh, I don't need to go to the gynecologist if I'm not having sex. But 
I think that is a disservice to us in our, in our current culture, because we still have body parts that are still working and being used and, and, and having sex with a man does not mean that your body is fulfilling its, its, its role. And so I, I, I always, you know, every roommate I've had, I've, we've talked about their bodies and talked about the importance of going to a gynecologist and not just if they are getting married, but I've had friends who also did not get a premarital exam and they ended up having to have hymenectomies a month or two yeah. after they were married. Their marriage marriages were not consummated until they've been married for a month or two and they had that procedure done. So we, we do not talk about sex in the Mormon culture as a whole. We really don't. We don't talk about this in a general term. And I think that is a big disservice just to us as, as women wanting to be autonomous creatures. I was just going to say that Sarah said the word orgasm and there's no better time that this quote is going to come up, Lindsay. I know. I'm so, and I'll set you up for it. I just wanted to say one thing about uh, Mormon men too, which is because their rhetoric is so couched in shame rhetoric, right? Like stay away from it, stay away from it, stay away from it. Don't look at it. And if you look at it, don't enjoy it. Um, I also think that like I was talking to a Mormon man and I was saying, yeah, you know, um, we were talking about this married couple that we knew. And I said, well, it turns out that the reason why the wife never slept with him isn't because, you know, she didn't have a low libido or any of these stereotypes about women, but he was just bad at sex. And my Mormon man friend said, how can you be bad at sex? And I was like, are you kidding? And he was like, yeah, how, how can you be bad at that? And I was like, oh my gosh, you can be bad at it. Like it's, if you don't, you know, knowledge is power. And I think it's this idea that men are just like inherently know what to do and they know how to handle themselves in the situation. And I think it's more complex than that. Mm -hmm. All right, Christina, I know you want to use this quote, but let's hurry. Let's get us up to modern era really quick. Um, it's just so good. Everyone's going to love it. So I just want to make a comment that these ideas persisted for most of Mormonism, that the church didn't abandon. So the gestation and lactation, that was abandoned pretty early on, that the church stopped teaching that explicitly. But ideas about birth control and abortion remained for a very long time, that for general conferences, up until very recently, church leaders were standing at the pulpit and telling women not to use birth control. And the latest I have is in 1970, when um, Ezra Taft Benson, in the improvement era, talked about in his article, Strengthening the Family, he says, quote, and then those words follow, and you think of those political leaders who are promoting birth control and abortion, oh, my people, they who lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. And that's from Second Nephi 13, 12. And let me want the sisters in all serious, let me warn the sisters in all seriousness that you who submit yourselves to an abortion or to an operation that precludes you from safely having additional healthy children are jeopardizing your exaltation and your future membership in the kingdom of God. Those are harsh words. Yeah. So this idea of family planning would have been scoffed at. Mm -hmm. um, Sarah, do you want to say anything about birth control in the frontier period? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, yeah, just that, that midwives also played a role in educating women about their bodies. And 
I believe that they did have a rudimentary understanding about ovulation and menstrual cycles, but they shared that information with their friends, with their clients and, and to help women to know times when they should avoid their husband. (laughs) So they could have some control over their bodies. And they also figured out that the more you breastfed, that your chances of becoming pregnant, that would space out your pregnancies a lot more if you kept breastfeeding. Interesting. Okay. So there was an understanding of women's cycles, at least from a female perspective that we know of. Yes. And perhaps, you know, they're, they didn't have specifics. They didn't have any set record or knowledge of this, but it was this information that was passed around between the midwife and client relationship. Yeah, fascinating. And I think that there is still, I mean, to go with this theme of midwives being sort of called as Heavenly Mother would, it is a very maternal thing to learn about sexuality from another woman. You know, there is this sort of maternal quality. So I I like that. Um, I want to point out an interesting um, side note. In 1857, on March 27th, we know that Brigham Young does a sealing of a woman to a faithful elder as proxy to the father of her children because he was impotent. So Young performs this polyandrous ceremony for time, and the relationship lasts a few years and produces two sons um, in 1858 and 1861. And then the mother's legal husband raises the boys and raises them as natural sons and um, they grow up, you know, firm in the faith. So it was an interesting way to deal with this idea of birth control. You know, she could get pregnant through a proxy. And we also know that it went the other way, that men, sometimes one of the reasons for plural marriages was the wife could not have a baby. And so she would, you know, become a mother through her sister wives having children. Mm-hmm. And I want to mention that in terms of the law of purity thing, if we're thinking about people not um, having sex relations during gestation or lactation periods, that's an 18 month period at minimum, right? So a lot of the later fundamentalist prophets said that it's nine, nine, nine. So it's nine months to gestate nine months of lactation and nine months um, of being, of having sex to conceive. Um, And so a lot of groups that have three wives, that kind of makes sense. Um, unless all the wives are pregnant at the same time. But a lot of people who are practicing the law of chastity in this way might look at Joseph Smith's lack of children or even Brigham Young's lack of really that many children given his amount of wives and say that that might actually be why. Because the principle of plural marriage wasn't, it was intended to raise up seed. You know, you've talked about that a lot, Lindsay but it was very particularly meant to raise up righteous seed, right? Not all seed got to have kids. They wanted the good ones only. And so the law of purity and the early teachings in the law of chastity were trying to make sure that only the really good spirits attain tabernacles. So all of these these teachings that are talking about the law of purity and the law of chastity, they're all centering this discourse around that there are righteous spirits that need to have tabernacles. And this is the way to make sure that the most righteous spirits get the most righteous tabernacles possible. And so this could potentially be a way of explaining why Joseph Smith had so few children, why Brigham Young had so few children, and why John Taylor had so few children. Granted, they had a lot of children, but given the amount of wives they had, they didn't have a whole lot more than monogamous families. And that's something you've also talked about 
Well, and I think that gives, you know, some context to these more scandalous bits of Mormon sexuality, like, you know, Bishop Warren Snow's castration when it said that he wanted to marry someone, uh, a, a woman, and she wanted to marry a man her age. And so they castrate that young boy. And then in, I think it's a year later in January of 1857, where Hosea Stout describes um, how Mormons disguised as Indians dragged a man out of bed with a whore and castrate him with a square, like the arm in the square and uh, closed amputation. I think that it's this idea of we don't want your seed going where it shouldn't. I mean, we also have Robinson, uh, Dr. Robinson, the story of Dr. Robinson in the 1850s, where he married, he's a non-Mormon that comes into town with a lot of money. He marries a woman who is Mormon, who should have been a plural wife, but right before her marriage, she marries him. And they burn down his bowling alley and they eventually murder him. So it's this idea of we're going to start policing quite violently sometimes who you're sleeping with. And on that dark note, we'll talk <laughs> about uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk of adultery throughout the years. But I, I like this quote from Brigham Young where he says in 1859 that uh, bishops should give the Melchizedek priesthood to 18 year old boys, even if they've been sowing their wild oats for years. So I think there's this development of like still that boys will be boys. I mean, John D. Lee, there's a lot of accounts of him talking very sexually explicitly with the other church leaders. And I think that was just kind of the understanding that men were rough around the edges and women were these on these pedestals. Let's see. We have a lot of stuff in the 1850s and 1860s where and women... We have a lot of stuff on like venereal diseases and the church's massive concern for that. Uh, give us just like a brief summation of that. Okay, let me find it. So I think the improvement era is actually one of the greatest things the church ever did. If you haven't looked through the improvement era, it is incredible. Um, but throughout the 20th century, the improvement era was very concerned with venereal diseases and things that came from venereal disease. Um, in 1913, a professor from BYU talked about, quote, insanity. And he talked about how sexual immorality is connected with insanity, which you mentioned already. And he talked specifically about how paresis and syphilis are a direct cause from the sexual immorality, paresis being a mental disability. Oh, in the improvement era in 1913, there was also an article on um, by a doctor who was part of the Utah State Industrial School. And he was part of an organization that wanted to improve the morality of Salt Lake City. And he had very harsh words about venereal diseases saying, quote, this is those who die annually from syphilis and gonorrhea, all preventable. There are going about amongst us always at least 2 million people with syphilis, a disease worse than leprosy, contagious yet preventable, and nothing is being done about it. I dare express the hope, which is indeed almost an assurance, that the complete enfranchisement of women, this is my favorite part, will result in the establishment of such standards as purity in food, such standards of life and living, such measures of prevention, such safeguards about the home and family, the preventable sickness and death will be looked upon as an unnecessary menace to social welfare and disgrace to our civilization. So syphilis is considered to be worse than leprosy at this time, which is an interesting um, disease to point to because it is a biblical disease. It is a disease that a lot of people had a great fear of because it was associated as a worst case scenario uh, in the Bible. 
and he's talking about the, there's that this is a disastrous potential. And at this time, of course, there wasn't a cure for syphilis. There were some kind of interesting uh, homeopathic remedies for it and ways of dealing with it. One of them, interestingly, that I found recently was they would give people with syphilis malaria, uh, and the malaria would kill the syphilis, and then it was easier to treat malaria than syphilis. And so that's how they were treating it before penicillin. But the improvement area is talking pretty intensely about the rise of venereal diseases, mainly syphilis and gonorrhea, up through the 1970s um, as a way of, for lack of a better word, scaring people about the consequences about sexuality. Interesting. Yeah. And have you guys heard the the theory that Joseph Smith had c- contracted some sort of STD as a youth that impacted his fertility? Have you heard that that theory? Um, no, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's. I heard it, but I don't know where I heard it, so that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I think it's well. I think it's just a theory. I don't think that they, I've never really seen anything scholarly on it, but it certainly is curious to think. That, you know, maybe that explains some some would say syphilis and that's why, you know, he kind of lost his mind at the end or that's why they lost so many babies um, that weren't, you know, were viable pregnancies or whatever. And that's why he had no offspring. But certainly is an interesting theory. Okay, so we want to get into the modern stuff because we're going on really long. 1870 is when they start talking about the evil of masturbation amongst Utah Mormons and, of course, only men. And sorry, I have to read this quote because I like it. This is in 1871. Counselor Daniel H. Wells tells the Grantsville School of Prophets, quote, A great many of our our young men are abusing themselves by the habit of self-pollution or self-abuse or, as the Bible terms it, onanism. Um, which is one great cause why so many of our young men were not married and it was a great sin and would lead to insanity and a premature grave, which goes back to what we were talking about, which is this idea of, you know, sex in excess leads people to be crazy. Um, And we just got to point out that polygamy is probably why there were more bachelors (laughs) in 19th century Utah. It's probably not masturbation, but we can see why they'd be concerned. Um, okay, so let's get into the turn of the century. Uh, does anything start to shift? Sarah, I just want to make sure I'm not like bulldozing over your history as we're talking about the scandalous stuff. No, and because I don't know if I can tie this in somehow, but I want to tie in how in Mormonism, how the, the power was stripped from women with the washing and anointings and just this power, this calling of midwifery was stripped away. Um, beginning with Wilford Woodruff, going on to Heber J. Grant, and then Joseph F. Smith in 1946, finally. But I don't know if that's even going to fit in somewhere now, since we're getting into the good stuff. Yeah, let's go ahead. Um, Let's just, before we move on to the modern stuff, I want to talk a little bit more about midwifery. Um, yeah, so I I want to point out that with the the power was stripped away from Mormon women, this religious right that they that they had, um, they had this, they really had a religious duty in the Relief Society um, in from the mid 1800s uh, to, around to 1946. We have a specific year, but beginning in, in, um, in 1888, um, Wilford Woodruff was asked, you know, what about women doing these washing and these anointings and healing women and blessing them? And he said, okay, well, yeah, it's okay for now. Um, and then in 1923, Heber J. Grant, he said that that sisters could still use oil and do those sort of healings, but the scriptures, the quote was, the scriptures tell us to call on the elders. 
And then in 1946, Joseph F. Smith was, women were wanting this practice to be sanctioned, I guess. Um, and he, he wrote guidelines that we now see as a standard today that, you know, the priesthood is only something that is enacted by men and, and this, this healing and this ability for uh, women to care for other women and to care for their children really was taken away. And that mirrors this um, professionalization of, of birth and of midwifery and stripping away that power from women in the medical field and in the, in context of the church and with, you know, the, the woman's religious duties in the Relief society. And I mean, that goes right along with, I mean, what you talked about, Lindsay, you mentioned correlation and how everything just became watered down and we lost, I would say some of that, some of that really, that magical part of early Mormonism in which women were these autonomous beings and the Relief Society was running so much of the church and taking care of so much more than just meals for people on Sunday like they are now. Yeah. And I, I actually think it's kind of beautiful. It would have been really helpful for me to have some of those rituals. I think it would have lessened my anxiety about a lot of this stuff because, um, yeah, I just didn't, I felt a lot of shame about these issues and it seems like there's not really, it, it, it didn't have to be that way in Mormonism. Yeah, not at all. Well, so I want to move into modern stuff. There's this great uh, blog post on Mormon Chronicles, which I'm going to lead to, that has some of these goodies in here. But um, I'm going to bring us up to modern times. But basically, we have, you know, um, church leaders concerned with this idea of what's what's adultery versus what's polygamy. We have, as Christina mentioned earlier in the podcast, Brigham Young is teaching that Mary was the wife of Joseph and the Heavenly Father had multiple Heavenly Mothers. That's part of this Adam-God theory. And then we have, I really like, I like this uh, story that the Millennial Star in 1872, and this goes back to what Sarah was saying, published an editorial titled Motherhood of God and repeats a child's question, why don't you ever tell me about the Heavenly Mother? Don't she give us anything? And it talks about those who yearn to adore her and expresses the approval of praying to Heavenly Father and Mother. And here's the conclusion of the editorial. It says, when we draw near to the divine man, lo, we find a divine woman smiling upon us. In the Father's many mansions, we shall find her and be satisfied, end quote. And we do know that uh, Albert Carrington had a problem with women. He was caught in 1882 at mission headquarters with the British maid on top of him. And it's not until 1885 where he's excommunicated for being with uh, another woman. Um, in 1877, the grand jury described Salt Lake County probate court as a divorce mill, which granted 300 divorces in previous 12-month period, primarily on the grounds of incompatibility of temperament, different aims and objectives in life. 80% of divorced couples come to Utah for divorces from such places as San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Terre Haute, and St. Louis. And 13% were granted on the same day of complaint, 25 within the week of application, and a total of 85% are granted within a month of application. Uh, so divorces were common in Utah, thanks to polygamy. Um, 
1878, the LDS newspaper, the Salt Lake Herald, has an editorial on unhappy marriages, and it talks about these divorces and why people are getting married. And a lot of it is equated to unrighteousness. And 1881, First Counselor George Hugh Cannon tells the General Conference, quote, We hear now of men having got married to cover up certain things, of children born wonderfully soon after marriage in some of our settlements, and perhaps in the city no less than in our rural settlements. Brigham Young Jr. in 1883 says that girls who marry outsiders are not worthy of the sacrament, which is kind of interesting. I love that. Yeah, he says there are many girls in Utah who have never had an offer of marriage from a man of the church. Girls who marry outsiders are not worthy of the sacrament. Um, and that, re- that relates to a lot of the early concern for young women. Yeah, yeah, it really does. They're going to leave and marry other people because in a polygamous system, there's never enough women. And George Cucannon talks about that really early on. And he said in the Western Standard, in the Western Standard, that one of the greatest problems is women being discouraged to not marry quick enough. Well, and then we have, this is kind of a gross quote, but in 1886, Apostle Lorenzo Snow prophesies from the pulpit that in the future, brothers and sisters would marry each other in the church. Right. All Wait, our whore at brothers and sisters. Yes, yeah. He says all our whore at such a union was due entirely to prejudice, and the offspring of such unions would be as healthy and pure as any other. These were the decided views of President Young when alive. For Brother Snow talked to him freely on this matter. I got to look I, up the quote in that. And I think that importantly goes back to what I was mentioning with Joseph Stewart's article and Paul Reed's book that eugenic ideas were really dominant in early Mormonism and they continued well into the 20th century. So there was a very strong idea of bloodlines and a very strong idea of purifying those bloodlines. Um, And so that fits in completely well within the narrative that 19th century Mormonism was creating. Yeah, that's, that's really good analysis. Sarah, do you want to say anything about that? No, I'm just shocked that he had such a lack of understanding of science and suggested siblings would marry each other. That's all. Well, I mean, like... God said that. Unreal. Yeah. (laughs) On September 8th, 1890, Apostle John Henry Smith preaches from the pulpit that married people who indulged their passions for any other purpose than to beget children really committed adultery, which makes sense. Uh, Some FLDS children who... um, left before they got married in the church talk about how they thought anything sexual was adultery. And I think it's because of rhetoric like this. Um, Apostle Lorenzo Snow in 1890 talks about Jesus coming from God and Mary having sex. And let me see. In 1891, Utah's Chief Justice Zane writes, quote, Polygamy has demoralized the people of Utah. I presume there are more sexual crimes here in proportion to the population than anywhere else. And that's probably an exaggerated claim, but I will say that in this timeline that I'm going to link, there are several cases of men, like, for example, a 73-year-old man wanted to marry a 12- and 13-year-old, and Brigham Young actually didn't allow it. He said they would be unyoked and unequally yoked in their marriage. So there were, you know, instances of pedophiles marrying children in yeah. Frontier, Utah, and sometimes they were allowed and sometimes they weren't allowed. I want to quickly mention that a lot of the leading into the 19th century, I'm uh, sorry, leading into the 20th century, and especially during the 20th century, a lot of the discourse on adultery and sexuality shifts to talk about protecting women. So 
it kind of creates this pedestal situation of we're putting women on this place. We have to protect them and save them. And that's why we do these practices. And I think one of the best examples from an LDS leader in this time, I don't have the year because it comes secondhand from a fundamentalist pamphlet on sexuality. Um, And it's George Teasdale. And it says that during a special priesthood meeting, he spoke that, quote, no woman should be required to bear children more often than two years apart. And that only if she and her husband were both in physical and spiritual condition in keeping with the law of God. So bearing children to every, more than every two years apart. And if you're unable or you're not allowed to have sexual relations any other time than for procreation, that's very limiting of sexuality. And it was designed supposedly to protect women. And so a lot of the discussion in in this time was assuming that women had very low sex drives, didn't want to have sex, that this was very much a male issue. And so in order to protect women, we're going to create these laws to help them. So it very much pedestalizes women. And the interesting thing is that from a medical standpoint, it a recommendation that is given through ACOG, which is the governing board of obstetrics and gynecology, is that women would wait two years now in between pregnancies, not waiting to have sex at any of those times, but they would wait two years between each pregnancy to have their body fully be replenished of its nutrients uh, before before growing another life inside of it. So it's interesting how there is, that is founded in, there is some uh, medical backing to what he was saying, but I'm not saying that women should only have sex once every two years, but like considering the health of the woman and, you know, having her blood supply being rebuilt, like it is the recommendation is that there would be two years in between Interesting pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But I mean, if, and I think that that's, you know, sound medical advice, like I'm not going to disagree with that at all. But if you're simultaneously teaching that you cannot have sex unless it's going to result in a pregnancy, it's simultaneously teaching, you know, it's not overtly teaching, but it's covertly teaching that every few years is really when you should be having sex. And there are certain fundamentalist pamphlets that do talk about that you should only be having sex once a month to coincide with ovulation. And that's to protect the woman and not only to protect her physical health, but as um, Teasdale's quoted, it's also to protect spiritual health and therefore also her virtue. Oh dear. (laughs) Virtue. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of virtue in eight, 1997, Apostle Brigham Young Jr. temporarily resigns as vice president of the Brigham Young Trust Company because First Counselor George Buchanan allows its property to become a first-class brothel on Commercial Street. Um, Apostle Heber J. Grant is invited to its opening reception and is stunned to discover himself inside a, quote, regular whorehouse. Uh, and this, there's a whole history about this in the book Polygamy and Prostitution, which I can link to. Let's see. In 1898, at General Conference, Apostle John W. Taylor reports that in one rural area in Utah, 80% of LDS marriages involve premarital sex. I want to know what area that was. I'm going to find that out. Apostle Anthony H. Lund reports to apostles that during a six-month period in 1901, 58% of LDS marriages in a rural ward were forced which is unfortunate. Um, 
and mirrors some fundamentalist practices today. Apostle John W. Taylor in 1902 tells the stake president meeting that, quote, those who have sexual intercourse with their wives or touch any dead body are unclean until the evening and therefore during the day should not enter the temple or officiate in any, any ordinances of the gospel, end quote. Joseph F. Smith tells apostles that um, in 1903, there would be no daughters of perdition in final judgment, but they do authorize rebaptism without church discipline for a young man who confesses the secret crime he committed with animals. I don't know if I want to leave that one in there. Um, <laughs> let me see. Uh, in 1941, J. Reuben Clark tells General Conference youth and their leaders, quote, When I was a boy, it was preached from the stand, and my father and my mother repeated the principle to me time and time again. They said, Reuben, we had rather bury you than have you become unchaste. And that is the law of this true church, end quote. So that was as early as 1941. They were concerned with divorce rates in the 1940s. And so they warn women about the dangers of self-pollution, prostitution, homosexuality, which, un which is tragic to say, quote, is found among both sexes. I actually have a really interesting quote about that, that this concern for polluting women um, that comes out of the improvement era. Shocking, because it's great. Um, in 1946, and there, it, there's an article on tobacco, and one of the concerns is how it's going to affect the degradation, the quote, degradation of the sex of women. Um, and it says, quote, the report comes from Paris where smoking has been indulged in by women longer and to a greater extent than in other civilized countries. That strong evidence has appeared that the effect of cigarette smoking is to unsex young women by producing premature degradation of the sex glands. And so there was a great, so health was really linked to sexuality and specifically women's sexuality and ensuring that it remained on a pedestal. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I think that that would set the course of I mean, sexual rhetoric because how it gets skewed towards women, especially in the 20th century, is women are responsible in helping men keep their virtue. But women, like we don't ever really hear about men you know, being responsible as a temptation to women there. We, we do have rhetoric where they're supposed to protect it as, as an outsider, not a participant, but like sort of guarded against the dragon of sin, but not, it's not personalized like it is to women. Does that make sense? I'm not quite sure how to articulate that. Yeah. That's great. We do know that in the 1950s and 1960s, the church um, starts to, starts to think and speak publicly about, homosexuality. We should do a whole episode on the development of homosexuality in the church. But uh, it's not really until one of their own apostles, who's a patriarch of the church, Joseph F. Smith, the patriarch, is um, caught in the act of homosexuality that the church leaders release. It starts to come on their radar. You know, in the 50s, Spencer Kimball starts to talk. He, he reports to David O. McKay in 1959 that in his view, homosexuality was worse than heterosexual immorality. And they start to really think about this. We do know that it's in 1964, the first presidency letter sent out to the church says that all prospective missionaries found guilty of fornication, sex perversion, or heavy petting or of comparable transgressions should not be recommended until the case has been discussed with the bishop and stake president and the visiting general authority. And that actually really is a shift because in early, early times, men that were caught having, you know, any of those things would go on missions later. Like we talked about the guy who was 
with his foster daughters who were 12 years old, he was serving as a bishop in Frontier, Utah for years later. It, it's not until the 1960s that we start to see uh, sexuality being policed in such, I would say, a stringent way. And that's pretty reductive of the history, but I think that's where the the modern view comes from. So, Christina, you've been waiting all this time. Well, so I just want to quickly mention that in the 1960s and 70s, it wasn't just the LDS church that was cracking down on sexual practices, that given the rise in the use of birth control, the free love movement, most religious traditions, especially conservative ones, were really focusing on this issue in my own church. In 1968, the Humani Vitae was published, which is big encyclical that the Catholic Church became famous for that banned all birth control at all. And so our the Catholic Church became um, known for its restrictions on birth control and various sexual practices, and that was around the same time. So I do want to note that the LDS and Mormon traditions weren't unique in this period for their rise in discussion. But Spencer Kimball, the man who wrote The Miracle of Forgiveness, had a lot to say about sexuality. <laughs> I cannot with this quote. And we're um, going to play it after you read it, but go for it. Yeah, so there's two quotes, but this one is particularly interesting because it comes from October 1974 General Conference. And the talk the talk was God will not be mocked. It's Sarah's face that's making me unable to do it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So the talk is God will not be mocked. And he says, quote, we hope that our parents and leaders will not tolerate pornography. It is really garbage. <laughs> Hold on, let me redo it, Lindsay. It's such a wacky quote. I can't believe this is real. Okay, okay. <clears throat> I'm not looking at either of I covered the screen. So in October 1974, President Spencer W. Kimball gave the talk, God Will Not Be Mocked, where he says, we hope that our parents, quote, we hope that our parents and leaders will not tolerate pornography. It is really garbage. But today it is peddled as normal, normal and satisfactory food. <laughs> Why is it called that? Food, F-O-O-D, food. Let me redo it because I the word food kills me there. Okay, I'm going to do this correctly. Can you read it for you? I no, I'm so sorry. Okay, here we go. In 1974, President Spencer W. Kimball gave a talk at General Conference called God Will Not Be Mocked, where he says, quote, we hope that our parents and leaders will not tolerate pornography. It is really garbage. But today is peddled as normal and I can't do it. It's because he calls it. Food. Do you want to send it to me and I'll read it? Yeah. No, I'm going to do it this time. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and play that. When we go to the places of entertainment and mingle among people, we're shocked at the blasphemy that seems to be acceptable among them. The commandment says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Except in prayers and proper sermons, we must not take the name of the Lord. Blasphemy used to be a crime punishable by heavy fines. Profanity is the effort of a feeble brain to express itself forcibly. We hope that our parents and leaders will not tolerate pornography. It is really garbage, but today is peddled as normal and satisfactory food. Many writers seem to take delight in polluting the atmosphere. Seemingly, it cannot be stopped by legislation. 
There is a link between pornography and the low sexual drives and permissiveness. We live in a culture which venerates the orgasm, streaking, trading wives, and similar crazes. How low can humans plunge? We pray with our Lord that, he, that we may be kept from being in the world. It is sad that decent people are thrown into a filthy area of mental and spiritual pollution. We call upon all of our people to do all in their power to offset this ugly revolution. It's ridiculous to imply that pornography has no effect. There's a definite relationship to crime. Murder, robbery, rape, prostitution, and commercialized vice are fed on this immorality. Sex statistics seem to reflect the relationship between crime and pornography. It is utterly without redeeming social value. We urge our families to protect their children in every way possible. We live in a permissive world, but we must make certain we do not become a part of that permissive world, that degenerate world. We're shocked at the depths to which many people of this world go to assert their freedom. We fear that the trends of permissiveness toward immorality are destroying the moral fabric of our generation. We live in a culture which venerates the orgasm, streaking, trading wives, and similar crazes. I love the veneration of the orgasm. We live in that culture. That's who we've become. Um, but he also importantly went on in uh, on January fifth, nineteen eighty two. There was a letter that was released. A lot. This became kind of widespread and distributed widely. But it was a letter to stake presidents, mission presidents, branch presidents, and bishops, and it said, "Quote: The first presidency has interpreted oral sex." as constituting an unnatural, impure, and unholy practice. If a person is engaged in a practice that troubles him enough to ask about it, he should discontinue it. And so that's a really important quote, because up until 1982, the LDS Church was regulating the sexual practices of its members. Um, And granted, that isn't to say that all people um, abided by what their leaders were saying. Certainly in the Catholic Church, there are people that take birth control. But up until 1982, the LDS Church was prescribing what is and is not correct sexual practice. Yeah, and uh, in 18, in 1969, the first president makes their first official statement on birth control, um, where they say, quote, we believe that those who practice control will reap disappointment by and by. And they emphasize self-control as a dominant factor. In 1978, this is where they say married persons cannot enter the temple if they had sex before marriage. And this is consistent because the temple recommend questions have changed over time and the temple practices. This is why, you know, some of you might have parents who didn't have to wait the year till they got married to, you know, from when they had sex to when they got married to repent or from when they had a civil marriage to a temple marriage. This starts changing in the 60s and 70s, 70s. And as Christina said, in many ways is a response to like the civil rights movement and this idea and the feminist movement and these discussions of uh, women's sexuality and women's autonomy. In 1978, there was a church news headline, interracial marriage discouraged. So we were still doing that 
in the 70s. And that was in the handbook up until fairly recently. I think it was the 2000. Oh, yeah. And I can tell you too many racist anecdotal stories, but it's still very prevalent, I would say, in uh, fundamentalist communities. Yes. And it's in the LDS church, it was um, culture, what was is what was used in place of race, but it was still code for race. And we know that from the history of using culture as code for that. But young people were counseled not to marry outside their quote culture. In 1981, branch presence at the Missionary Training Center um, at the MTC in Provo received a 21 point handout to help both male and female missionaries avoid masturbation. Point 19 is quote, in very severe cases that may be necessary to tie a hand to the bed frame with a tie in order that the habit of masturbation in semi-sleep condition can be broken. So it's actually very quite explicit at the time. This is when Apostle Marky Peterson writes steps in overcoming masturbation, a guide to self-control. And this it was a prevalent document. I still, I think it's still passed around. In 1982, the First Presidency repeats the 1978 instructions for interviewing married persons, but adds a new part, which is the First Presidency has an interpreted oral sex as constituting an unnatural, impure, or unholy practice. Rough time to be a Mormon in the 80s, I guess. Especially since you have to understand that some females only achieve orgasm, the venerated orgasm, through oral sex. So you have to understand that this is such a male perspective, right? This idea that oral sex really is dirty if it's a man, you know, a woman or someone performing on a man. But, you know, I I had a woman in my ward just a couple years ago who has never had an orgasm with her husband. And I think it's because they follow these rules. And that's so sad to me that this rhetoric, which has now been changed, by the way, I think Packer has updated it by saying people can do whatever they want in the bedroom. The church has no right to be in the bedroom. But this rhetoric still carries. I know a lot of older generations who believe this. And what that means is some women are not going to experience pleasure in bed. 1982, they ins- they instruct all, the First Presidency instructs all stake commission leaders that they are inquiring too much in personal intimate matters involving marital relationships between men and their wives. In 1983, there's a lawsuit filed in February against a church for $28 million. A father blames the LDS bishop for contributing to a 16-year-old son's suicide for counseling his son that masturbation is a terrible sin and being a normal adolescence in puberty. State Kip Ellison became increasingly less able to reconcile his sexual desires with the strict doctrine of the LDS church. He became filled with self-hate, end quote. Um, let's see. You sound pretty obsessed with masturbation. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> what? The church leaders just sound really I know, obsessed they with really, really did. I think it just wasn't, you know, on the minds of the frontier until things were settled in the 1880s and 1890s. In 1987, First Counselor at the time, Gordon B. Hinckley, tells priesthood session of General Conference that marriage should not be viewed as a therapeutic step to solve problems such as homosexual inclinations or practices. And in 1991, there's an article in the Trib where uh, 58% of LDS women admit to having premarital sex. So... I just want to point out, like, if you have a community like the LDS Church, which is very conservative on these practices, and 58% of women are still uh, having premarital sex, I would I would say it's 
pretty hard to like, we can have these standards all day long, but it doesn't seem like people are always following them. Well, and it's just from a historical standpoint, you know, in, in birthing practices, women, once now that we're to a point where, I mean, our mortality rates, they're not that great in America. We're still 14 maternal deaths per 100,000 births, but we're to the point where like, okay, women are staying alive. Now we can start to go into more of the policing of their bodies and their birthing practices now that they're staying alive. I feel like that went right along with the church leadership. Like for a while, it was, okay, we need to have more midwives because we need to keep women alive on the frontier. And now as we, everyone, we shifted over, we're in Utah, people are settled, then they could start focusing on other parts of sexuality because, okay, we're all surviving. Everyone's living, they're living to adulthood. And we have, you know, lower maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates. And then it seems that the the focus just shifted to this, yeah, this purity and this, you know, avoiding masturbation. And when before it was just like, let's just stay alive and see if we can keep producing children. Totally. I think, I think as is with um, all humans, when they're bored, they start to put too many rules on things. Christina, let's kind of wrap this up. What do you guys, what are some closing thoughts on this? Uh, I just wanted to comment that um, a lot of my interest in this came up with talking to fundamentalist communities that still practice the law of purity and that still maintain the law of chastity the way that it was taught in the 19th century or the way that they, that their historic memory perceives the 19th century to have functioned in terms of sexuality. And so I think that's something worth noting, just like when talking about polygamy and fundamentalism, that fundamentalism isn't strange in terms of Mormonism and how their sexual practices work and how their sexual practices are. But they're really a continuation of what the 19th century and early Mormonism was trying to accomplish and what they were, how they, what their ideal was for sexuality and for human reproduction. Yeah. And I think you can still find a lot of some of these ideas preserved in not just fundamentalist communities, but in the LDS culture, like we've talked about, you know, I, I have all of this modern information at my disposal and it's not until I'm 30 that a non-Mormon Mormon feminist, Sarah Burlingame had to show me how to put in a tampon. I mean, that's just, that's the world that we lived in. And it's, I think it's the world that they lived in as well. And I would also say that we're talking about knowledge from mainstream sources. It's, it's likely that people in rural communities had very uh, limited access to even some of the things we're talking about. And that's in, in the 1960s, the LDS church, at least in the improvement era, they associated the rise of venereal disease with an increase in sex education. So they were very much part of that campaign that thought if you teach kids about sex, they're going to have it. And then we're going to have a lot of pregnancy and disease. So it makes complete sense that people today in an LDS context would still not have wide access to sex education. And that's something that we see in Utah today. Um, Just a few days ago, someone posted on the internet that their school district doesn't teach about contraception uh, in Utah. Uh, I know people, when I moved here, I thought that was kind of insane. Uh, that, that was insane to me because I remember learning very comprehensive sex ed in California at a really young age. And so when I moved to Utah and I met people who didn't know what chlamydia was, that was wildly shocking to me. And do you mean me by, by that when you moved to Utah and they didn't know what chlamydia was? Do you mean me? I remember distinctly <laughs> Lindsay asking me if chlamydia was forever. I didn't know. 
and it was some sins don't wash off christina (laughs) but that one washes off with penicillin so you're fine oh good Um, but yeah i was really surprised by that i had comprehensive sex ed from my mom when i was like 10 so it was just very surprising coming to utah and meeting people that didn't know what the pill was well sarah do you want to give us some closing thoughts on being a midwife now, what your experiences are, how LDS women are connecting to the practice. Because like I said in uh, the first part of this podcast, women, um, well, everyone was discouraged from sort of what we consider more natural healing things as if natural has always been uncivilized and now we have modern medicine. And so, you know, having a baby in the hospital is the only way to go. Yeah, I, I, as I mean, I've been... I've been a birth worker for 13 years now and I have, I, I love learning about the rich history of midwifery, especially in relation to Mormonism. I do feel that it is an honor for me to continue on that tradition. And I do, I mean, I living in Utah, I am in a, a fortunate place to, I have several non LDS and LDS clients and I, I appreciate that. I I like being able to focus on different parts of the midwifery process with different people. And I, I mean, I am at a advantage. I'm also living in Utah because we do have very favorable laws towards midwifery, towards these out of hospital births um, in Utah in particular. It's a lot more difficult for a midwife to be licensed in, in Washington and in California, but we do, we have regulations in Utah, but it is a, it's very favorable towards out of hospital births and towards women being autonomous and choosing where they are going to deliver their baby. So we're very fortunate in, in Utah to have that. Um, I do, I want to encourage people listening to dive deeper into the history of, of midwifery and Mormonism. It is really fascinating. It's a really beautiful, rich history and also into the history of the washing and anointings that occurred before childbirth that the really steady sisters would perform for the sisters in their ward. I, it's a very beautiful thing that happened. And it, I mean, and it went until 1946. So it's not that long ago that this was happening in, in our wards. And I just want to encourage people to dive into that. And I'll, I'll also send over some links of articles um, and the Release Study magazine from 1915 for people to look at and to learn more about. I love that. Well, thank you for coming on tonight, Sarah. Uh, Christina, do you want to give us any final thoughts? Um, I think I'm good. I think other than, you know, I'm a really big supporter of sex education in schools and comprehensive sex education in schools. And so I hope that moving forward, that there is a trajectory toward more comprehensive sex education, not just in Utah, but in the nation in general. And I would like to see a change in how not just the LDS church, but how religious institutions generally deal with women's bodies and sex education, because it's currently in the Salt Lake Valley, there is a gonorrhea epidemic. Uh, Planned Parenthood of Salt Lake has talked about it. And that's not acceptable in 2018. So I hope that there could be a trajectory toward helping people understand their bodies, understanding how bodies work and being educated so that this can stop. And I also hope that if we've taken anything out of this podcast, it's that men and women should never have sex while they're pregnant. So. (laughs) Amen. 
Um, Amen. Make Adam God again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies. Have a good night. And everyone, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.